So if you look right in the beginning, source number one, it speaks about, well, first of all, let's read the title, because that already, you know, gives us a little bit, some excitement. Vayishlach 5784, that's right now. And the title is A Time to Kill. So we'll say it like this. If you look at the first three sources, they're really one combined source. The first source is the actual Pasuk, and the next two are Rashi. One is Rashi on Medrash Rabbah, and the other one is Rashi in the Gemara, Mesechtas Nazir, Daf Chavtes Amr Beis. Okay? The question is like this. What is the source in the Torah for the idea of a Bar Mitzvah? Where do we get a Bar Mitzvah from? So some will tell you that it comes from a reference by Yitzchak, where Yitzchak had a celebration, where he was turning 13, something along those lines. I will tell you not. From the class tonight, it is quite clear that the source for a Bar Mitzvah in the Torah is right over here, this week's Parsha. This Pasuk, um, Parak Lamedalad, Pasuk Chafei, the entire story of Levi and Shimon and Shechem. So before we get into this, very, very quickly, we're going to go over the story, okay? What? 13. 13. So some people say it's a bar mitzvah, but he had a bris. <laughs> and it's Yishmael. So we're not a huge fan of We don't consider it so Jewish. <laughs> it is significant. But if you look, I'll show you why I'll tell you. It's, it's quite clear from Rashi. But before we get into this entire thing, first we want to hear what is the story of Levi and Shimon and Shechem. So in very short, to summarize, without getting into the details, because that's what we will get into through this class. Levi and Shimon, or really the story starts with Dina, right? The Pasuk says that Dina was going out, she was looking at the girls in the land, and then Shechem, which is actually the name of the prince, he sees her, and he decides he wants to be with her, he takes her, he kidnaps her, he has relations with her, and now he comes to the brothers, and he comes to Yaakov, and he says, I want to marry her. And they even say, look at this, We'll make a whole partnership, we'll make a whole grand, you know, we'll marry your people, you'll marry our people, it's going to be fantastic. We like you guys, you like us, we're all cool, let's do it, this is great, right? So Yaakov actually, when he proposes this, Yaakov doesn't say anything, it says Yaakov was quiet, Yaakov was silent, Yaakov doesn't say anything. And Levi and Shimon and the brothers actually, not specifically Levi and Shimon, they offer and they say, you know what, if you want to do that deal, how about you guys circumcise yourselves? Because you know that our custom is you need to be circumcised. They said, okay, fine, that's great. Look at this. We're all, uh, we're all getting along. This is going to be the beginning of our great relationship. Sure enough. Kumbaya. Yes, kumbaya. Sure enough, what happens is Levi and Shimon, on the third day, when the entire city was in the most pain, come in and they kill every single man in the entire city. And it even says, which a lot of people leave out of the story, is after Levi and Shimon were done, the brothers came in and they took everything in the city. They plundered the city. So it wasn't just Levi and Shimon. It sounds a lot from the story. People always make it sound like Levi and Shimon were these two rogue, angry brothers. When Levi and Shimon were done with all the men taking away all the threat, the brothers came in and they totally annihilated everything and took everything. They took all the spoils, anything that they wanted. Now after this happened, Yaakov becomes very upset. Exactly why he got upset, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yaakov becomes very upset, and then Levi and Shimon end off and they say to Yaakov, what do you expect? You think we're going to let our sister become a harlot? You think she's going to be a prostitute? We're not going to let that happen. And that's the end of the story, okay? So this is the source in the Torah for the idea of a bar mitzvah. What's the source of it? Where does this come from? So it says like this, look at Rashi. So first of all, Rashi on Bereshis Rabbah, I would say is a little bit more obscure because it's a medrash. If you want like a very clear source, let's go to source number three. So if this source number three, focus on the part that I underlined, because the other part of it is uh, it's more focusing on that tractate of Gemara. It's a little bit off topic. 
Rashi says like this very clearly. You don't see in the entire Torah that anyone, if you look in the Pasuk, it says, On the day of the third day when the city was in a lot of pain from the circumcision, It uses the word ish, man. Rashi says this word ish means an adult male. And Rashi proves it that he says you'll never see in the entire Torah, the Torah will use the word ish for somebody who's under 13 years old. What's the proof? He says, look at this Pasuk. He says, But we do find that once you are 13, it does call them ish. So Rashi says, we know at that time they were 13 years old. So we say, what? Oh, how is he? So over here, he seems to say they're the same age. No, it's possible they're Irish twins. It's possible they're Irish twins. I mean, back then, especially today, it's Irish twins means they were born, they're born in the same year, within nine months. What I've seen in general, it's interesting this Rashi says both of them. What I've seen in general is at least one of them. I think Levy, I forgot which one. Yeah, has to be, yes. So it has to be Levy. So Levy was 13. What? No, so he doesn't say over here how he knows they were 13, but he says everyone knows they were 13 at that time. He says like it's a fact amongst the Tamid Chachamim that they were 13. He doesn't get into that. How he knows, I'll tell you, how he knows they were 13, he does not bring the source for that, but he says over here this is the fact. Shimon and Levi were 13 years old. They, no, no, he says they were 13. Not at least 13. He says they were 13. He says, Shimon Velevi Bahi Shaita Gimoshana. At that time, they were 13 years old when they did the attack, and the Torah refers to them as Ish. So, how do we know that? And then also, Rashi says. What? Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's an obvious calculation that, like, if you. Yeah. Okay, so that I didn't bring of how he knows. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but he also, if you look in the in the Rashi, because people are asking now, maybe how do you know specifically? He's talking about thirteen. Look at the Rashi on the same Pasuk in Medrash Rabbah. Rashi says, Ish Kherbo. What does Rashi say on this word from the Medrash? He says, Ish Doresh Ben Yud Gimel Lemitzvos Hayu. Ish tells me they must have been 13 Lemitzvot, which means when he calls someone a man, they need to be 13 years old. This is the source in the Torah. Rashi comes, this is the source in the Torah that to be 13, you're a Bar Mitzvah. Yeah, what's your question? How they were 13? That I don't know how they were 13, but that we could find because it seemingly he states it as a fact. You know, maybe you could just Google it. He seems to state that this is the fact. Rashi seems quite certain. And it's never argued. It's never like debated. Like I've never seen an opinion that says they were not 13. It's something which is a, is a, is a fact. Yeah. It's, 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 it
His teens, <laughs> when he's a troubled teenager. Well, that could be maybe, that could be, if you're talking about maybe because of his behavior, that they don't give him that title. Because also it's saying Ish is a, is a style of like, this is a man. This is a coming of manhood. Yeah. So that I'm not sure about, but let's, we're going to stay focused on the topic. We're going to move through this. So let's hear like this. To cap it off and put it like this, this is brought as the accepted source. This is brought as the accepted source in the Torah of how we know 13 years old is of our mitzvah is from here. Rashi says, this is the Pasuk. How do you know? Because Shimon and Levi were 13 years old and it calls them Ish, which means a man. Now here comes the obvious question, okay? The Torah could have told you, especially something like a bar mitzvah. And if you think about it today, think about how funny all the generations are. The bar mitzvah has become a central part of Judaism. Every single person, you look at Adam Sandler's songs, everybody knows what a bar mitzvah is, right? Every Jew knows what a bar mitzvah is. You don't have to be any dati. Eight days of Hanukkah, everything. Yeah, but you don't have to be Haredi. It's basic, basic. You're Jewish. You're friends with Jews. You have a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, whatever it is, okay? It's become a central part of Judaism. So you would think, first of all, it would be more prominent in the Torah, but the main question is that the source would be from somewhere that would be a good lesson. This is the source for bar mitzvah. So you would think, wow, this is something we want to tell our children how to act. We want to show them, wow, maybe you want to say a story of how maybe Yosef, he became bar mitzvah. There was a ceremony, maybe Yaakov, maybe Yitzhak was something nice. It says, Shimon and Levi, how do you know you have a bar mitzvah? Oh, because when Shimon and Levi, they killed an entire city of men when they were weak on the third day after a circumcision, that's how you know about a bar mitzvah. That's a horrible source. That's a terrible source. You want to educate your sons and tell them that's how you should act like a bunch of bohemian, revengeful, terrible, evil people. That's not what we want to do. So how does that make any sense? So over here, we say, what? What do you mean, Ashkava? Yeah. It's not happy thought. This is the source for a bar mitzvah. Be like Shimon and Levi. It's a disaster. So over here, what we want to do is to look at the story again. From the beginning, go through the story from the beginning and analyze it to see, was Shimon and Levi really bad? Was it wrong or was it the right thing to do? And why am I bringing this right now? As you will see from the class, it is one of those moments, as we've been talking about throughout this entire saga since October 7th, where you look in the Parsha and you have clear instructions for exactly what to do at the time right now. It's unbelievable. You will see how this story is literally completely practical and a clear instruction of what we need to do right now in regards to Hamas. You will see what we're talking about. So look in the beginning of the story. It says like this, the first verse Dina, the daughter of Leah, source number four, whom she had born to Yaakov, went out to look about among the daughters of the land. Which, by the way, some people, which I'm not a huge fan of, some people bring this to say that Dina was promiscuous. You know, she sort of like ended up that way because she was going around, and this is what I mean, she was looking about the daughters of the land. Well, we know, uh, how old was Sarah, or who was it that was married at three years old? We know it was three. Sarah. Rivka was three. Rivka was three. So we know it's not far-fetched at that time. Yeah.
Okay, Pasuk Beis. And Shechem, Shechem, the son of Hamar, he takes this girl, this three-year-old, the Chivite, the prince of the land, saw her and he took her, lay with her and violated her. Okay? Now here, source number five is an unbelievable explanation by the Arachayim HaKadosh. Okay? Fascinating. Unbelievable. So he looks at the words Nasiya Aretz, the prince of the land. He says, Nasiya Aretz, Shechem's position in the community was the reason that nobody came to Dina's assistance when she cried for help against being raped. Which means over here we know Dina was raped and nobody did anything about it. We don't see anything of anyone in the entire Chivite community, in the entire international UN community, giving any issue with Dina being taken. Why? Because Shechem was the prince of the country, right? The Yahargu calls Zachar and they killed every single male. Why did they kill people who had not actively committed a sin? The Archaim asks, why did they have to kill all the men? Shechem was the one who took her. Why do you have to kill every single man in the country? It doesn't make any sense. So he says like this, first kill Shechem and then go and kill all the men. At least, at least first kill him. Like why would you go and kill every single man in the country? So he says like this, actually the sons of Yaakov did not intend to kill anyone except the guilty party. However, all the inhabitants formed a human barrier to protect their king and prince. As a result, the sons of Yaakov were forced to kill the townspeople under the heading of killing a rodef, a pursuer, someone who endangers the life of the avenger. When the Torah states that they killed all the males, this means that they succeeded in killing Hamar and his son only after killing the other males in the town. Had they not done so, they could not have ex executed someone who was guilty of death. So what does he say? They were aiming for Hamar and Shechem. The problem is that the entire town formed a human barrier. There's the only way they could get to them. They had to kill everyone else in the way. Another reason in addition to this, they killed all the males in the city, was that they had all been accessories to the crime by keeping Dina captive after the rape. This was tantamount to kidnapping. According to the Noahide laws, according to the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, which we know every single human being on the planet is obligated in, the penalty for kidnapping is death. Gentiles are not guilty of the death penalty for sleeping with an unmarried girl. So what was the reason why they killed him was for two reasons. Number one, they physically had no choice. They were coming to get Dina, and all the men had formed a human barrier. The town had formed a human barrier. Number two was because they kidnapped them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I got the chills. Because you read this, and you literally have exactly what we're talking about today. The people who were kidnapped, the people who were raped, the fact that there's a human barrier around all the hostages, around all the soldiers, around the ammunition, the fact that everybody is complicit in the crime. Meaning if you look... People will say, and people are debating, oh, when you look at the streets of Gaza, you don't know who's the one who's part of it. Who's the one who's actually cheering yes? Who's the one who's forced? I'm not somebody who's saying every single person is guilty. But if you look at the town, you're not seeing people all of a sudden rebelling against Gaza. You're not seeing people stepping up and doing anything about it. You're seeing people who are all part of the crime. When Israel releases prisoners, everyone's standing in the street and they're screaming, I don't know what, you know, some Arabic excited about something. Over here, the Arachayim says, anybody who's complicit in the crime of kidnapping from the Sheva Mitzvah ben Noach is Chayev Misa. Continues the Rambam, source number six. Halachically speaking, why was it good that Shimon and Levi killed them? That according to the universal Sheva Mitzvah ben Noach as well, Shechem and his nation were guilty of capital crime for not fulfilling the seventh law of the Sheva Mitzvah ben Noach, which is to establish courts of law and a justice system. Okay? So I don't know if Gaza has a justice system. It doesn't seem like it does to me. So that would seemingly also put them under the category of going against Shev Mitzvah Noach. Source number seven, which comes from the Maisei Hashem, a rumor was spread by the palace that Dina was a common harlot who willingly serviced the prince. 
This could be inferred actually from the words of Shimon and Levi themselves when they responded at the end of the parak, when Yaakov rebukes them, they said, should our sister be treated like a harlot? Meaning, should we have allowed the rumor that was being spread that Dina is a harlot to go unanswered? Now, I'm not saying they're calling them a harlot, but I don't know if you've seen one of the most, meaning, and generally speaking, my personal, uh, very personal approach when it comes to these times is try to think about everything rationally. Try to not get too emotional, right? So a lot of times we say, anti-Semitism, this is anti-Semitism, that's anti-Semitism, and sometimes we throw the word around, but then you see something that happened in this modern time, which to me this was a reference to from the Maise Hashem, was the fact there was a woman who works in, I believe, one of the universities in Canada, and her job is to be on the staff who deals with when girls are raped or if girls have any, you know, if they're forced in any kind of way in that area, where she's supposed to be the woman who stands up for them. She signed a letter saying that no Israeli girls were ever raped in the entire process. There was no any sort of sexual crime. Which, the reason why to me that's so absurd is number one, even if you're going to say yes or no, how could you possibly know? How could you possibly know yes or no? To sign a letter, meaning, I do know as a kid growing up, I was a huge fan of the show Law and Order SVU. Okay, I don't know if you ever heard of it. Law and Order SVU. Law and Order, you know Law and Order? So they have a specific Law and Order, which is SVU, okay? Which is basically they deal with a lot of these crimes. I don't know why we watched this one. My sister watched it, and I started watching it, and it was very addicting. Yeah, but no, this one's Law and Order SVU. It's a specific type of Law and Order. Now I'm thinking about it. It's a little bizarre. But my sister liked the show. So in this show, they show you how in general one of the biggest problems that they have in the world with sexual crimes is that people are not believed, right? Because it's not something in a way you could say for a fact. You could say, oh, maybe you have proof but maybe you consented, and then nobody knows. So for the fact for someone to say from across the world with no evidence that it didn't happen when they know that their whole job is in order to promote women being more comfortable coming out and sharing their stories is a crazy thing. And I actually, I thought about this. It's an unbelievable thing when you think about it. It's really, it's really mind-blowing. So if you hear the Maisei Hashem says, this is what they said. When Dina was captured, they said, oh, she wasn't captured. She went willingly. What are you talking about? So that sort of blew my mind as well, the way it correlates to the modern time. Source number eight as well, the Sefer Ayyashar, Shimon and Levi were fighting in self-defense, which means, similar to what we have today, you're going to let a nation sit on the border of you that absolutely, not just says, now we know that they want to kill you. That's self-defense. You're going to sit there and say, oh, we're not going to, we're going to stop, we're going to have a ceasefire so that they could build up in five more years, or they could come up with a new plan with Iran in ten more years. Who knows? It's not an option. It's to say, oh, they'll have a ceasefire. And frankly, the funny part is, I don't even know who's calling for a ceasefire. Because even, uh, what's his name, even Elon Musk, who in the beginning was, you know, totally out for lunch when it came to this whole thing. He came and he said, yeah, it probably makes sense that you should kill them. It makes sense. They showed him all the videos and the evidence. And he came out and said, yeah, you probably should kill them. That makes, that makes logical sense. So we say, Shkoyach, Elon, thank you very much for your support. Um, oh, source number nine. They had strong reason to believe that the whole point of Shem taking Dina was to bait them into fighting in order that they would beat them and take their family fortune as loot. So really, he was saying the intent of Shechem was in order to bait them to attack them, and then they would end up beating them and take all their money. So that was one of the ideas which is brought up by the Medrash Lakach Tov. And the last source we're going to say before we get into the next part, we'll stop for questions, is source number 10. Shechem attacked Dina purely because she was a Hebrew, a.k.a. because she was Jewish. This is a opinion from Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch, as well as the Abarbanel, which is interesting because the Abarbanel himself experienced one of the greatest moments of anti-Semitism because he was alive during the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, the Abarbanel. 
So it's interesting that he writes that. So what's the reason why Dina was attacked? Was not because she was the most beautiful girl in the land, but because she was Jewish. So Shem decided he, she's going to be, because she's Jewish, anti-Semitism, that's it. I'm going to pause this over here first. We are stating right now, from all the sources that we just brought in, to give it very clear, is that what Shimon and Levi did was absolutely the right thing, and it's absolutely something that we want to teach our 13-year-olds why, when they become bar mitzvah. Why specifically do we want to teach them this story? Meaning not just are we explaining now how they were vindicated, not just are we explaining now how they were right to do what they did, but we're trying to explain now specifically this story, how it's actually an amazing lesson for a 13-year-old boy. That's what we're going to end off with. Now you have to wait till the end. Now, the question is, yes, now we have proven from all these different sources, from the Rambam, from Rashi, from Rav Samson, Rav Hurst, from the Archaim, that Shimon and Levi were vindicated. What they did was fantastic. We need to teach this to our 13-year-old boys. The question is, Daddy wasn't so happy about it, right? And we are going to start discuss the Rabban. Here he comes. Here comes the Rabban. So Yaakov was not a happy camper, right? So the question is, how could you say this is a good story if Yaakov was so upset? So here we go. Source number 11. And Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, you have besmirched me. And that's when you know that daddy is upset. When he uses the word besmirched, you know that's really something big is happening. You've besmirched me, making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. If we're translating this, basically you've ruined my reputation amongst the people. What? Havishin, you embarrassed me. No, 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 no. Havishin is the odious. 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 That's a good odious. Okay. I being but few in number, they shall mass against me and smite me, and I shall be destroyed. I and my household. He said to them, you guys have put us in jeopardy. Shimon and Levi are brothers. This is talking about later on in Beratius. Instruments of violence are there. Whereas this is talking about you were referring to her. She said that the... Yeah, the blessing. This is, this is what Yaakov says to them. He says, Shimon and Levi are brothers, instruments of violence are their wares. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Let my honor not unite with their assembly. For in their wrath they slew a man, and willfully they maimed an ox. Cursed be their wrath, for it is fierce, and their fury, for it is cruel. Okay? All the Kohana come from Levi. Oh, that's actually one of, you'll see this. Okay, so let's look at this. Let's look what the Medr says. Medr says like this. Cursed is their anger and as fierce as their wrath. We just read like this. Cursed is their anger. If you look, the Medrash says, he cursed only their anger. Likewise, the wicked Bilam said, how will I curse when God has not cursed? What is he talking about? If a time of anger, he cursed only their anger, can I come to curse them? Which means if Yaakov was angry at Shimon and Levi, what? Next, next page. If Yaakov was angry at Shimon and Levi, and yet with divine spirit, with Ruach HaKodesh, Yaakov cursed only their anger and not them. Can I, Bilam, curse the Israelites? And then what does he say? I will divide them in Jacob. Everyone who circulates among the doorways to beg is from the tribe of Shimon. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, Levi too will have to go around the doors. What did the Holy One, blessed be he, do? He provided him with his sustenance cleanly. And yet Yaakov's edict was fulfilled. Which was what? The Holy One, blessed be he, elevated Levi and gave him one-tenth. And he circulates and says, give me my portion. That is why it is stated, I will divide them in Yaakov. So here we see in the end, the curse of Yaakov and his blessings. Hashem took it. He fulfilled it with a blessing. Think about this. Levi has automatic parnasa, Not just automatic parnasa when the Jews are doing well. Meaning if you do the math one-tenth, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Levi for free. And Levi doesn't have to do anything. Levi has to be a Kohen. He has to do his service. But he never has to worry about parnasa. He always gets 10% of all the Jewish people. So think about how Hashem took the curse. 
What, the coin of the levy? Okay, fine, but they have an automatic parnasa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's see the Ramban. Okay, let's see the Ramban. I just want to get through this part of here. There's a question, there's a question which may be raised here. This is from the Ramban, like Ruby was talking about before. It would appear that they answered with the concurrence of her father and his advice, for they were in his presence, and it was he who understood the answer which they spoke with subtly. And if so, why was he angry afterwards? Which means, just to explain what he means over there. The Rabban is saying, what happened was in this whole exchange, was that the brothers, they hatched their plan. Shimon and Levi hatched their plan that they're going to get them circumcised, whatever. <coughs> which means that Yaakov think, meaning nobody stops at that part of the story, which doesn't make any sense. When they offered the circumcision, Yaakov was there. Yaakov shouldn't have said, are you guys, what are you guys talking about? They're going to circumcise themselves, they're going to get married? Like, what are you saying? And he stood there and he was like, yeah, he just stayed silent and they all agreed. At that moment, Yaakov was like, yeah, let them circumcise themselves. Thinking that Dina's going to stay married to Shrem? No way. No chance. He had to know what the plan was. And he was complicit. He was an accomplice. He stood there and he said, yeah, they'll get circumcised and then we'll go in and we'll kill them. So what does he say, the Ramban? Moreover, it is inconceivable that Yaakov would have consented to give his daughter in marriage to a Canaanite who had defiled her. For sure someone who had raped her. Maybe, you know, but like, no question. Now surely all the brothers gave that answer with subtly, while Shimon and Levi alone executed the deed, and the father cursed only their wrath. But... What? So no, so that... So that I think Levi takes care of. No, it's Shimon or Levi who says, I'll marry you. Who says, I'll take you and I'll marry you. Shimon or Levi ends up marrying Dina. That's what it says. That Shimon or Levi said to Dina that she was worried that she wasn't be able to get married. And Shimon or Levi said, I'll marry you. Which back then, there wasn't so many options for Shaduchim. You know, the parents were the Shatranim, the parents, the, the wedding planners, the flower arrangers. There wasn't a lot of choices to, for other people to get married to. So Shimon or Levi, I forgot which one. Yeah. Well, back then, they had no, they, that was all the Hebrews. That was everyone they had, you know? And there was no halacha of not marrying your sister at that time. So. Maybe they did a destination wedding. <laughs> That's a purish. I forgot the source. No, but it says Shimon or Levi said to Dina, for sure, I'll find a few. I think it might just be Rashi. Shimon or Levi said to Dina, that I will marry you because I, exactly what you said would be the problem, is that she'll come and she'll be the one who was raped, who's going to want to marry her. Shimon Levi said, I'll marry you. I forgot which one, yeah. So, well, I don't understand why anger is labeled to this behavior. I mean, anger is, is like unjustified behavior of some kind. This is, this is not anger. This is a conscientious act to take care of a problem so listen to what he's about to answer. I'll answer your question right here. The answer, literally what the Ramban says, the answer is that the craftiness lay in their saying that every male of theirs be circumcised, as they thought that the people of the city would not consent to it. Which means, what was the Ramban saying? Which is very interesting because I find this so fascinating that the IDF is nothing like this. Is that what was their issue... And what was Yaakov's issue? Actually, if you look at the Pasuk, it actually all makes a lot of sense. What was the problem? Is that they didn't give them a fair fight. 
Yaakov is saying to them, you're ruining my reputation amongst the land. What does it mean you're ruining my reputation amongst the land? Everyone's going to know that we asked them to get of a circumcision. We spoke as if we were speaking honestly. And then we went and we killed them. If you would have said to them straight up, are you crazy? You took our sister and you raped her and you think we're going to go into a deal with you? And you went to war with them and you killed them? Okay, fine. That's justice. But the fact that you lied to them and you said circumcise yourself and you killed them when they were weak and they were down, that was the mistake of Shimon Levi, the Ramban is proposing over here. Which is very interesting because again, they're saying in modern times how careful the IDF is to make sure to not do that. If anything, from what I understand of the little bits and pieces that I've heard, the IDF goes to extreme lengths to even to, to handicap themselves, that they can't even throw a certain level of bombs because the bombs are controlled, the weight of which bombs can be thrown where, and they have to throw leaflets everywhere they're going to attack. I mean, have you ever heard in your whole life of an army that drops a leaflet when they're going to attack somewhere? It's the craziest thing I ever heard in my whole life. I never heard anything like that before. What? I'm sure it's been done. I'm saying it's a crazy thing to me. But that's, I guess, that's the laws of war today. Oh, the army said that? Yeah. I thought BB said, I thought BB said we're going to hunt them down. So, just want to wrap this up. If you look at most Poiskim, if you look at most commentaries, the Rambam, the Ramban, Rashi, Samson Rafal Hirsch, the Abarbanel, all across the spectrum, you will find the general consensus is that what Shimon and Levi did was absolutely justified. And the only part, if you want to nitpick, was the way that they did it. And the fact that they lied and they tricked them and then they killed them when they were weak. They should have done it honorably. And that was really what Yaakov was saying to them, is that now you dishonored me amongst the people of the land, is because now the people of the land are going to say, I'm a liar. How am I going to be able to speak to anybody from now on? If I make a deal with someone, they're going to say, you made a deal with those people and you killed them on the third day in their sleep. So the idea over here that he's trying to bring is if you think about it, then it's also something that we're discussing now. I'm actually going to end off reading the actual words of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on this piece, that he says that this is something which is an amazing story to share with a 13-year-old boy by his bar mitzvah. By associating coming of age with the story of Shimon and Levi. These are the words, <coughs> the quoted words of the Rebbe. By associating coming of age with the story of Shimon and Levi, the Torah is emphasizing that our connection with the Torah and its mitzvos cannot be one that begins and ends with the mind. Shimon and Levi put their lives at risk. There was reason to say that they should have remained passive and let the matter go by. Meaning, just to pause and think about it for a second, who, what, whose job do you think was easier? You think it was easier to be Yaakov and the brothers who said, oh, you know, Dina was captured, she was raped and she was kidnapped, but you know, yeah, what are you gonna do? You know, it's a, it's a country. Or to be the two brothers that went in and took on an entire country. If you look at it from the outside, whose job do you think was more difficult? It's not easy, to, it's not hard to figure out the answer to the question. Nevertheless, their inner sensitivity to moral values would not let them remain still. Seeing an outrage, they realized they had to do something no matter what the danger. Why is a person prepared to risk his life for his values and principles? Because that is who he really is. His true eye is not his individual self with his wants and desires, but his soul, which is an actual part of God. Since Israel, God, and Torah are all one, when a Jew sees the Torah's values are being flaunted, he should be touched to the core of his soul, which means when a Jew sees 
that moral values, moral values against the Torah, values against his people are being desecrated, he should not be able to sit idly by. He should have to attack. There's no way he could let it happen. And it should not be an issue that merely causes him pain. He should be prepared to do something about it, even if it involves self-sacrifice. This is a fundamental lesson that every bar mitzvah boy must learn. So which means right now, to sum up what the Rebbe was saying and really everything that we're talking about tonight, a bar mitzvah boy should know, and especially you see in Israel, every bar mitzvah boy does know. It's not even something, sadly, we actually see the reality right now. Is when something happens, when you have your people kidnapped, and you see the nations of the world are not doing anything, it is your obligation to stand up and say, I'm going to do something about it. And you might say, oh, that's, that's wrong, it's anger and everything. It's much easier to not do anything. It's much easier right now and much more comfortable for everybody right now, especially once the ceasefire started, to say, let's keep the ceasefire going. Everybody, no more war. The airlines will come back. We'll have British Airways and the Singapore Airways. Everything's going to go back to normal. And we'll just keep it peaceful for another 20 years, hoping that they don't attack. It's easier to do that. To go in and say we're not going to stop until the job is done is much more difficult. No, to go and to... Oh, to do. Exactly, to do it. So that's what Shimon and Levi did. They took on an entire nation, killing the entire nation of men, because they said, nobody is going to do that to our sister. It's not going to happen. And then the Rambam and all these different sources bring all the halachic proofs for what they did. So that's... Uh, does anybody have any questions? For the story. But first I wanted to see if there was questions about the story. Raivin the Raivin. It is actually a, it's a Hasidic story. It's not about any Hasidic Rebbe or anything, but it is a story from Russia. There was a soldier in the Russian army, and he was part of the Cantonistim. You know what the Cantonistim were? The Cantonistim were Jewish Cantonistim. Jewish boys that were taken, Jewish boys that were taken when they were very little, kidnapped and put into the Russian army for 25 years. These were the Cantonistim. And the idea of the Tsar was, is that if you take a Jewish boy, when they're at a very young and an impressionable age, and you put them in the army for 25 years, <coughs> that will totally stamp out his Judaism. Meaning, how could a kid at a young age be taken to the army for 25 years? Is he going to still be Jewish after that? No way. So, that's it. And that's how we'll end the Jewish people. Of all the different solutions, the different final solutions that have come throughout Jewish history for the Jewish people, this was the solution of the Russian Tsar. One of these types of soldiers was in an inn by a bar. He's sitting by the bar, and in comes the Tsar. Why did the Tsar come into the bar? The Tsar would like to go around and to see what the townspeople were talking about. He was a paranoid guy, and he wanted to hear what they were saying in the streets. Were they talking about him? What were they saying about Russia? What was the word on the streets? So what would he do? They didn't have TVs back then. Nobody knew what he looked like. He would go and wear plain men's clothing, and he would go and hang around the streets to hear what people are talking about, and that's what he would do. So he sits down next to this soldier, and they start drinking. Two Russian guys, they're drinking. The Tsar takes a drink, he takes a drink, and all of a sudden the soldier smacks him in the face, the Tsar in the face. And he says, you don't know the rule? And he says, why you smack me in the face? He said, you can't... He says, when I put down my cup and it's empty, you have to pour me right away. He said, you went to pick up your cup. He said, the second I put down my cup and it's empty, you have to pour me more vodka. That's the rule in Russia. He says, okay, fine. And they're drinking together, they get plastered, these two guys. Sure enough, they're done all the vodka, they drank all the vodka that they bought. And the soldier and the Tsar have no more money on them. <coughs> Excuse me. So the soldier says, I'll take care of it. He goes to the innkeeper and he takes out a mashkin. He takes a collateral. What does he do? He gives him his sword. 
right? He wants to have a real collateral, so he gives him a sword, and the innkeeper gives him a bottle of mashka. And the czar, he has no idea that it's the czar sitting there. The czar sees this soldier. It's the equivalent of today of an Israeli soldier giving away his gun. You totally usur. Midaraisa, you can't give away your gun, right? He gives, he gives him the sword. So the czar thinks to himself, wow, this guy. And he looks and he sees on his uniform exactly which battalion is in and everything. And he says, you know what? We're going to teach him a lesson. The next day, the czar calls a surprise inspection of this, of this group, of this uh, battalion. Comes to the battalion, they're all running around. I don't know if you guys had this in, in sleepaway camp. They had something called uh, a pre-Shabbos inspection lineup. Yeah, that was like the closest us spoiled Americans ever got to anything like this. <laughs> it was the head counselor coming to check our bunks for before Shabbos started. And all the soldiers are running around and everything, but this soldier knows that he has a big problem because all the soldiers are going to stand there and he has no sword. So what does he do? He sits and he crafts a perfect replica of his sword made out of wood and he puts it into his sheath. And all of them are standing there and the czar comes to inspect them. And the czar obviously knows what's his plan is to take this soldier and teach him a lesson. He's going to be executed. The czar comes, all the soldiers are standing there at the salute and he starts walking down the line. And he has a plan. And he goes up to the soldier standing next to the soldier that we're talking about. And he says to him, he says, your button is not shined properly. He gets so angry, the czar starts freaking out. And he tells the soldier, the one who has no sword, he says, take out your, your sword right away and kill this man. Execute him. He stands in front of the czar with such disrespect. He doesn't have his button shined. He says, kill him. So he knows the soldier doesn't have a sword. So the soldier said, all of, right on the spot, right, literally off the cuff. He says, Czar, I would never doubt you. I would never say you're wrong. But if God thinks that this man is innocent, he's going to turn my sword into wood. And he pulls out the sword and it's wood. And everyone standing there says, wow, the whole place is blown away. It's unbelievable. And the Czar leans in and he tells him, I know exactly what you did. I'm sure you recognize me from the bar. And he tells him, I'm so impressed with your wit, with your bravery, with your courage and your quick thinking. I would like to promote you. And sure enough, this soldier rises the ranks and he becomes very close acquaintances with the Tsar. Very close. He loves him. He loves his personality. They hit it off in the bar that night. And ever since then, they've been buddies after the story with the sword. One day, the Tsar tells him, he asks him, he says, what religion are you? So he thinks he's going to tell him. He's some sort of Christian. He's some sort of this. Maybe what type, how from of Christian he is. And the soldier tells him, I'm Jewish. And the Tsar looks at him. He says, you're Jewish? He says, yeah, I'm Jewish. He says, you can't be Jewish. What do you mean you're Jewish? You never told me this whole time you're Jewish? The Tsar was a rabid anti-Semite. So the Tsar tells him, you have to convert immediately, obviously. And he's thinking to himself, of course. And he says, oh, I don't know. And he says, you cannot be Jewish. To be my close friend, he said, we'll treat you. You're about to be one of the highest level people in the whole country. You cannot be Jewish. Not a choice. So he says, fine. And sure enough, they set up a huge ceremony. He's going to convert. It's going to be in Ukraine. They have the Archbishop of Kiev is going to come. It's going to be grand. It's going to be fantastic. And this guy's going to convert to Judaism. Sure enough, the day of the conversion, the guy comes. And as he's on the way to the conversion, he's sitting in his carriage. And he feels this tremendous guilt. He cannot describe it. You have to realize this is a little boy who was taken from his home, little three-year-old, four-year-old boy, taken from his parents and was in the Russian army for 25 years. He has, forget no Judaism, he has nothing, ki He feels impossible. He jumps off the carriage, he runs, he jumps into a waterfall, into a stream, and he says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad, and he gives up his life. And the Tsar hears about this and he says, what a fool, what an idiot. 
But we know the story, the idea of the story is, is that there's something that every single Jewish person has inside them, which you cannot, you cannot put a value on it, you can't describe it, it's something which is literally a piece of God. And it's something which we all have. And when something is happening to us, which is against our people, which is fundamentally against who we are, we stand up and we rise to the challenge. And I have to say, I think one of the most unbelievably inspiring things that the Jewish people have today, that we have not had for hundreds of years, for thousands of years maybe, is to have an army of such brave soldiers. Meaning every time we were attacked, usually it was just we could daven, and then the country either would help us or they wouldn't help us, and we would just get pogromed, and that would be it. Now we have the opportunity to fight. We have the opportunity for our soldiers to go in and to fight back and to take care of business. It's an unbelievable thing. Baruch Hashem. And to see it, it's really, it's really a tremendous moment. So God willing, that whatever needs to happen is going to happen in the best way, with the only revealed brachas, only seeing good stuff. Mechaim.